Well, great to see you all, and thank you for your prayers while we were gone and uh, in the Philippines, and what an incredible time it was. We saw many, many people come to the Lord. Many others were encouraged. Uh, we did, interestingly, um, upon our arrival, I've never quite had this agree, uh, type of greeting, but uh, we got there, I got there on Saturday. We had our first church services on Sunday, uh, three of them on a Sunday evening. Uh, Amir and I were asked to speak at, and during that time, we had a volcanic eruption, which was an interesting way to be welcomed. And by the end of the uh, third service for the evening, there was ash all over everything. And uh, so we got locked down for a couple of days, but had wonderful times of fellowship with local pastors who had come by uh, the hotel to spend some time with us and us with them. So it was a very, very fruitful time. I saw people come to faith just everywhere we went, except at the Bible College, which was kind of a relief that everybody there was saved. I'm glad to see that. But... um, it was just an incredible time, and God moved so mightily. And we went down uh, at the end of the first week to Davao, to the southern portion of the uh, string of islands that is known as the Philippines. And, uh, you know, they kept talking about this eruption of this volcano. And the whole time we were there, it stayed at a, an alert level four. Five is the highest. So, you know, me and I were thinking, eh, it's probably good that we're headed south, a thousand miles away from this volcano. And we get down there on the first night, we're having dinner with the pastor and uh, the church leaders. And they told us that for every uh, every month since September, they've been having a 6.5 or larger earthquake. So I thought, well, great. We just got things shaken up all around us. But it was an amazing, amazing time. The conference was packed. People got saved. Uh, very, very powerful time. And uh, one thing I brought home that I wasn't quite aware of that we are missing during our times of worship here at CCT is choreography. And uh, so we're going to have to learn some of these hand movements that they do to all their songs. And uh, it's um, quite an amazing thing to turn around and see 2,500 people all doing the same movements uh, to the songs. But it was uh, very exciting, very encouraging. And I've asked the band to also incorporate uh, something else they do there, and that is they have interpretive dancers uh, during the worship time. And I hope you know I'm kidding, but uh, it was just, hey, it was just normal. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. It was righteous. It was holy. And it was before the Lord. And it was a great, great time. But uh, I am glad to be home. Now, proximity this weekend. Over at Calvary Chapel East Anaheim, our event there is also going to be a packed house. We're very excited about that. And then tomorrow night, if you're a World News Briefing Watcher, Amir and Jan Markell will be sitting in with me tomorrow evening. So that is sure to be an exciting uh, program. And if you would, please throw up a prayer for my household. As most of you know, every time I travel, it seems I pick up some kind of bug on the plane or something. And uh, I was in full health and felt great the whole time that I was away and came home to a house full of the flu. Uh, so Terry is down for the count. Uh, our granddaughter is as well. Uh, fortunately, I did get a flu shot, so I hope that means I'm exempt. But um, anyway, just pray for us uh, that we would stay in good health. So are you ready to get to the book tonight? Well, open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. 
2 Samuel 7, and by the way, if you'd like to read ahead for Sunday, we'll be in Acts 23, 16 through 35. Acts 23, 16 to 35 will be our text for Sunday. This evening we have 2 Samuel 7. And last time we noted that it's important not just to do God's will, but we need to do God's will. Does anybody remember? God's way. We do God's will God's way. And the fact is, we were told in Numbers 4.15 that when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary, this is the Lord giving directives to the movement of the tabernacle and its contents, and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Koas shall carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Koath are to carry, which included, obviously, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, God said he wanted the Ark carried. That was his will. He wanted it carried by the Levites. That was his way. And unfortunately, David and company ignored God's instructions, and they built a cart to haul the Ark like they had seen the Philistines do without consequence. And along the way, one of the oxen stumbled and a man named Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark and the Lord killed him. Now, that's a hard thing, I think, for us to understand. But we also have to understand that God had already given the instruction, don't touch the ark, don't touch the holy things, carry it in a prescribed manner. And this was not unknown by David or those who transported the ark at that time. They were all Jews, and Uzzah's family actually had possession of the ark for 70 years, and no one had died. So that tells us no one had touched the ark during that time. Now, in First Chronicles 13, 1-4, we see that David caught on to what God was concerned about when he consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader, And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in the land, all the land of Israel, and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities in their common lands, that they may gather together to us and let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul, Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. And David went on to say, we didn't carry it right last time, let's do it right this time. Now, David's desire to bring the ark into Jerusalem was sincere. It was right, it was God's will, but David didn't do it God's way. And we made the point through the death of Uzzah, a tragic event, that personal sincerity is not a substitute for biblical accuracy. We need to maintain our biblical integrity and our decision-making processes and how we look at and deal with life. And being sincere, you can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. And there's plenty of those people around today. Amen? Now, the fact is, it's the Word of God that reveals God's will and God's way, not our feelings and emotions or even level of sincerity. And thus we recognize that doing God's will God's way will always lead to blessings. And after the Uzzah incident at the threshing floor of Neshon, the ark was taken to the home of Obed-Edom. And while it was there, his household was blessed because of the presence of the ark. And then David realized God wasn't angry about moving the ark. He was angry about the way that they did it. It wasn't moving it to Jerusalem that displeased the Lord. It was how he was moving it. 
Now in First Chronicles 15, 11 to 15, David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and we mentioned these guys a moment ago, and for the Levites, Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, uh, Aminadab, and he said to them, you are the heads of the father's house. <laughs> I'm sorry, at the churches in the Philippines, they have lights going too. So I see we're picking up on some of their habits too. We've got a little light action going on here. Sanctify yourselves and your brethren that you may bring up the ark of the Lord of Israel to the place I have prepared for it because you did not do it the first time. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order or God's way. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel and the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders like they were supposed to by its poles like where they're supposed to as they were supposed to and Moses commanded according to all the word of the Lord. And we also know at this time that Michael, Saul's daughter, David's first wife, mocked the king for his exuberance in worshiping the Lord and his excitement for the entrance of the ark into the city of Jerusalem. And David said to Michael in 2 Samuel 6, 21 and 22, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maid servants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. We see the contrasting attitude towards the arrival of the ark in the city of Jerusalem and gave us our final point, and that is God is honored by our attitude, not just our actions. We are to be a joyful people, we are to be a thankful people, and indeed we are to rejoice in the things God has done for us. I quoted C.H. Spurgeon last time. I'll remind you of it because I thought it was quite a nice quote. He said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> now, we're back up to speed in Second Samuel and the life of David. And our chapter tonight brings us to a rather interesting place, a place from which, as always, we'll glean some truth, we'll garner some wisdom that should direct and define our actions and the steps we take. And our final point from our last chapter is a perfect segue into our time tonight, that God is honored by our attitude, not just our actions. Now, let me introduce our title in this very exciting manner. In over 30 years of Bible teaching, our topic and title tonight is my least favorite ever. Now, we're going to address my least favorite subject amongst all biblical truths, and yet it is something that every single Christian everywhere in the world has and will experience. And that brings us to our title, which I don't like and you don't either, which is this. Are you ready? Our title is, When God Says No. Yeah, see, you feel the same way I do. When God Says No. Now, we had an intro of some length to bring us up to date on where we are in the narrative of David's life. So let's just jump in and get this over with. But uh, the truth is, there's some very important lessons for us to consider because sometimes God does say no. Amen? Sometimes his answer to our requests and our petitions and even our pleas and cries is no. So what we're going to learn tonight, remember that attitude thing? 
is how to accept his no's with the same joy that we accept his yeses. So would you stand and read with me, please, tonight? Second Samuel 7, we'll start with verses 1 through 11 and finish off the chapter this evening. Second Samuel 7, verse 1, down through 11. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since that the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. We'll stop there and pick it up and also in our next reading. You may be seated. Now, before we examine our verses and arrive at our considerations for our time tonight, we need to make kind of a, a sub-point, an important one at that. We're told in 2 Samuel 5:11, a couple of chapters ago, that Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built who? David, a house. Now remember, Tyre is in Lebanon. It was famous for its massive and beautiful cedar trees. And King Hiram sent building materials as well as builders to build David a house. And it would obviously be a house that was fit for the king. Now David, with the Ark of the Covenant, now in Jerusalem, says, I'm living in this magnificent house, and the Ark of the Covenant of God is in a tent made of badger skins with a woven curtain separating it. From the people. And in essence, David was saying, I need to be, build a better home for the ark. And he tells Nathan, Nathan says, Go for it. The Lord is with you. Now, we'll read, and we just did, we'll read more about it in a moment. But one thing we need to note Nathan speaks out, tells David, Go for it. Then the Lord uh, has more to say about the matter. And the first thing I want us all to consider when making decisions is this. Human confirmations are just that, human. Human confirmations are nothing more than human confirmations. And when we have major decisions, we need divine confirmation, amen? And divine confirmation can come from other human beings, even as it does here through Nathan. But Nathan immediately speaks. And remember, he was a man of God. 
He was a prophet of God. David was a godly man, the man after God's own heart, the man God hand-selected to be king over Israel. David's idea was sincere. It was from a pure heart, a good heart. It was an honest desire. Nathan's confirmation was sincere, from a good heart, an honest desire. But he was wrong. And the other side of this is when our heart is right and our actions or direction is wrong, the Lord will not allow us to go in the wrong direction. I think we need to remember God is just as good at putting up stop signs as he is green lights. He will keep us from things that aren't his will or the right direction for us. And Nathan told David, do all that is in your heart based on recent history, based on what had happened since David had become king over all the land and the recent events concerning the ark. Nathan comes to the conclusion that the Lord is with him. Then the Lord pays Nathan a visit likely in a dream or a night vision, and tells him what to tell David. Now, the most interesting thing, I think, at least initially, in this exchange between the Lord and Nathan, is the Lord doesn't say to Nathan, how come you spoke so quickly? Can't you keep your mouth shut? Why did you tell David that? Now I got to tell him something else. He doesn't tell him he's out of line. He doesn't call him a false prophet. He simply says, tell David this. And then he says to him, and I'm paraphrasing, would you build a house for me, David? Have I ever asked this of anyone? Has anyone ever asked me if they could since the time I brought Israel up out of Egypt 500 years ago? For when the people moved, I moved with them. I've never asked this of them. I've never asked them why they haven't built me a permanent home because my people didn't have one either. Then the Lord says in verse 10, but... I am going to appoint a place for them to call their own and they shall be planted there and move no more. The Lord obviously speaking of the eternal capital of Israel and that is the city of Tel Aviv. I'm sorry, where is it? It's Jerusalem, amen. Now, one thing we need to also add and we don't want to misinterpret what the Lord is saying in this exchange and I'll mention uh, one commentator's view of this that I thought, thought was rather interesting. And in Haggai 1, 3 to 11, we're told the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panels houses, paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who eats, uh, he who earns wages, earns wages to put it in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins. Well, every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above Withhold the dew, the earth withholds its fruit. For I call for a drought on the land and on the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and all the labor of your hands. It isn't that the Lord didn't care about a house being built. He would later tell Solomon that his name will be there perpetually, even when as far to say, I will hear prayers made in that place. And he indeed does inhabit our praises made in this house or anywhere else. And he hears our prayers from our hearts offered to him 
with thanks and gratefulness. Now, one of the commentators looked at this in a rather interesting way. And I read what I just read to you because there is a strong possibility that he alone is right in how he viewed this conversation. What he looked at this exchange that Nathan told or the Lord told Nathan to have with David, he looked at it as though the Lord were addressing David in delight and saying, you know what? It's been 500 years. Nobody's ever offered to build me a house. Yeah, I brought them out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness. They drugged that tent all over the place. They broke it down and set it up every time I led them by the pillar of cloud by day or the fire by night. And they set it up and tore it down over and over. Nobody said anything like this to me before, David. And he turned this around into a positive thing, this one commentator did. And based on the fact of what the Lord said to Haggai the prophet about the temple laying in a ruinous condition, I think there's some credence to or credibility to what this one particular commentator said. Now, whichever way we interpret what the Lord told Nathan to tell David, the next thing the Lord does, I believe, is preparatory for what he's going to tell David next. The Lord says to David before he gives him his answer, he says, I took you from being a shepherd to being the king of Israel, my chosen people. I've been with you in all your travels. I protected you and allowed you to escape from Saul. I gave you victory over all your enemies. I made your name great, like the great men of history. And I will make a place for my people to plant themselves, that they will no longer be oppressed by their enemies. And then the Lord says, I caused you to have rest from all your enemies. Now, the Lord was about to tell David no to David's petition. You cannot build me a house. But before he told David no, he told him all that he had done for him. Now, the Lord is going to say no to us at times, right? So here's what we do when God's answer to our petition and our prayer is no. Listen, when God says no, remember all his yeses. When God says no, remember all his yeses. There's a list. We may not have been a shepherd and are now king, but there's a list of things that we all have that's longer than we could ever record that God has done for us. I'm sorry, what was that? That God has done for us. Listen, he said yes to forgiving your sin. He said yes to separating it from you as far as the east is from the west. He said yes to your desire to enter into heaven. He said yes to our prayers to use us. He said yes to our desires to be more like Jesus. But listen, not all of God's no's are negative, at least from our perspective. He said no to the accusations of the devil against us. He said no to Satan's efforts to steal, kill, and destroy us. And God sometimes says, wait to our petitions. And other times he just says, starts with N, no. Now, David said this in Psalm 8, 3 to 6. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of a man that you visit him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels. That's a temporary state, by the way. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, there are some no's in our lives that are hard. There are some no's in our lives that are painful. I'm sure that we've all had the experience of pleading with God to heal someone. And God chooses to heal them ultimately through death and bring them to a place where they'll never be sick 
anymore. Sometimes God allows us to go through fiery trials. Sometimes he allows the backstabber or the deceiver to advance and their actions impact our lives. It is during these times we need to remember all the things that the Lord has said yes to in our lives, the greatest of which is forgiving all of our sin. So that's our first uh, illustration, if you will, or instruction rather on when God says no. So let's pick up reading in verse 11 at the word also and read down to verse 17. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. The Lord says to David, I'm going to make you a house instead of you building me one. When you die and are buried with your ancestors, There's a son of yours that I am going to raise up as king and he will build me a house. And the Lord says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, listen, it's not mentioned often, but I have to say, I believe that God's choosing of Solomon as king among the many sons of David is one of the most spectacular expressions of God's mercy and grace in all of the Bible. Remember, Solomon is the child of David and Bathsheba, whose relationship began wrong and continued wrong, and that she was one among many of David's wives, and he was supposed to have but one. And yet the Lord chose Solomon to be the wisest and wealthiest king in history. In 1 Kings 3.11-13, God said to him, "Because speaking to Solomon, because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked yourself for understanding, for yourself, understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall like any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. Now, these are such wonderful things for us to consider, including the fact that God does not judge us for the sins of others. There was no uh, generational curse on Solomon because of what David had done. Our God is a forgiving, loving, and merciful God, even when he says, no. Now, the Lord promises mercy for David's son, says that I'm not going to do with your son what I did with Saul when he was disobedient to me. He said, I will chasten him as uh, through the usage of men or foreign armies, as well as the way the Lord chastens us spiritually and scourges every child he receives. But the fact is, he then tells David 
through Nathan that the house of David and his kingdom and throne is going to be established forever as it passes from David to and through Solomon. Now, this was a promise made back in Genesis 49.10, where the sons of Isaac, or Jacob rather, were told, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. The tribe of Judah was the tribe of kings. And the fact is the tribe of uh, David was the tribe of Solomon. And Solomon, therefore, would be one who would sit on the throne. And through him and through the lineage of David and Solomon, there would be a king who would sit on the throne forever. And this, of course, speaks of the king of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, we've well established the fact that God does things sometimes in ways we don't understand. Sometimes he moves and operates in the realm of the illogical. I've often thought about the fact that there was a promise made to Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah, that they would have descendants like the sands of the sea. Now, my logical mind says, well, then they should have been having triplets and quadruplets and twins and all this. But how many sons did God give them? One. Logically, that doesn't make any sense. If you're going to have descendants like the number, uh, number of the sand, grains of sand on the seashore. Now, there's something else interesting that God allowed and foresaw that happened within the lineage of David. In Second Chronicles 22, 10 to 13, we're told when Athaliah, the mother of Azariah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs of what house? Judah. She destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. What was the kingly tribe? Judah. What tribe was David from? Judah. Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, slew all or destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered and put him and and his nurse in a bedroom. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, for he was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. And he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. The descendants of David got down to one. You would think that this would not be something that would happen since this was the kingly tribe. And David was to have a man who was to sit on the throne forever until the one who would reign eternally came from his loins or his descendants, so to speak. And Joash was the only remaining descendant of David. So the promise of God rested upon the life of one person. And God is able to perform what he promises, even if there's only one person left. Amen. Now, the point is this. God does things differently than we often think he should. Sometimes he says no when we think he should say yes. Sometimes he says yes when we're expecting him to say no. Or logic leads to us to think that the answer will be no. Like with Solomon, David sinned with Bathsheba. David had Bathsheba's husband killed. And then a son is born from this adulterous relationship and the son dies. And you would think that the Lord would say no to children born to David and Bathsheba, but he didn't. He said yes to Solomon, that he will have his mercy and the Lord will be his father and he will be his son. Now, 
Here's our second point. Listen, when God says no, it's always the right answer. When God says no, it's always the right answer. How come nobody said amen there? Because we don't like a no answer. Amen. Just fess up. Now, but someday we're going to be thankful for the Lord's no answers. Because he knows what he's doing. And he's always right. And the answer that we may not have liked when we ask the Lord for something, someday we'll know that it's exactly what was the best thing. And it's easy to think he's right when he says yes, but when he says no, he is just as right as when he says yes and when he says wait. Now, no may not be our favorite answer. Okay, no isn't our favorite answer to our petitions and prayers, but when it comes, it's always the right one, even as God's friends. Now, we mentioned Abraham and Sarah. Think back to Genesis 17, 15 to 19, that God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not name her or call her Sarai or Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, meaning princess, and I will bless her and also give you a son by heir. And I will, then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham is giving evidence that he thought this was illogical as well. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac or Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and his descendants after him. God said no to Abraham's request. He said no to David building him a house. Instead, the Lord blessed Abraham and Sarah with Isaac, and he established David's house forever. And in both cases, God said no, because he was going to do something far better than what the request was that was offered. So let's now look at David's response to God's answer of no and see how we should respond when God says to us no. Look at 18 to 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now, what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel? the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever. And do as you have said. 
So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant is found in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed. For how long? For Ever. What a marvelous prayer. And I love how our section opens with David went to sit before the Lord. Very conversational as we see in this particular prayer. And aren't you glad that we have that same relationship with the Lord, that we can indeed converse with him and he will answer our prayers. I think sometimes we need to remember that half a prayer is getting an answer. And sometimes we just throw up our shopping list and then take off and don't wait and sit before the Lord For him to answer us, I think sometimes because we're afraid he's going to say no. Now, too often when the answer from God is no, many people's prayer life actually grinds to a halt or at least hits the pause button. But it's not so with David. The Lord says no to David building him a house and yes to building the house of David. And then David replies and says, who am I that you're treating me this way? That you have shown shown me such favor and made me such a promise. And he then makes a distinction between the actions of God and those of man. And then he closes with what I think is the most amazing statement in this all. Uh, In all this, he says to the Lord, you're treating me like this, but you know me. You know how I went to Philistine territory. And you know the things I did there that were displeasing to you. You know my lies and actions got a whole city, the city of Nob, and all the priests who dwelt there killed. You know the things that I have done. You know me, and yet you bless me in this manner. And in Psalm 139, 1 to 12, the psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and what? Known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. What a wonderful reminder in this psalm. On our good days and our bad days, the Lord is going to be faithful to us. When we make terrible decisions, and the illustration there uh, from the psalmist is, if I make my bed in hell, even there, your hand will hold me. You're even there. And even when I say darkness has surrounded me and evil is going to befall me, you are there and the darkness and the light are both alike to you. Too often, I think we let our minds say the Lord knows me. And that's why he said no to me. Well, the proper train, train of thought is the Lord knows me and still says yes to me. This is what David is doing. 
Lord, you, you know. And as the psalmist says, you know the words that are going to come past my teeth and off the uh, tip of my tongue before I even speak them. And yet you treat me like this and never abandon me. And you are always there for me. The Lord is always there for us. Amen. He is always watching over us. And David says the Lord did what he did for his own name's sake and his own heart and revealed them to David. David declares God's greatness and that there's no one like him because he is the only true and living God. He recalls how the Lord had blessed his chosen people. He prays that the Lord's name be magnified forever. And then he concludes with his amazement that God has said that instead of David building him a house, the Lord will build the house of David. And he closes his prayer, what we could summarize as, God, your will be done. Now, our last point, I'm going to play Captain Obvious for a moment, but I think you'll see why. And our last truth concerning the dreaded answer to our prayers is this. Listen, when God says no, he's still God. When God says no, he is still God. And since he is still God, when his answer is no, he's still worthy of our highest praise. He's still worthy of us setting aside time to praise him and thank him for all the yes answers and the forgiveness of our sin. He is still worthy of our trust. He is still worthy of our reverent awe. He is still the only and sovereign God. He still rides the clouds. He still measures the waters within the span of or the universe in the span of his hand. He's still always right. And he's still never wrong. He's still good. He's still sovereign. He still has our best interests at heart. And he still treats us better than we deserve. And seven times in David's prayer of amazement and thanks, he uses the phrase, O Lord God. This is an expression that was highlighting the sovereignty of God. And thus we see in Jeremiah 32, 17 and 18, The prophet uses the same phrase translated here as ah, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Read the next sentence with me, please. There is nothing too hard for you. Then Jeremiah adds, you show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, the great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Now, listen, let me just put this in plain English. When God says no, we shouldn't pout, we should praise. When God says no, we shouldn't pout, we should praise. I'll wait for the amen. Amen. Now, I mentioned in the past, and I'll read some to you tonight, that we would all do well every once in a while just to take a breeze through Job 38 and 39, as though we could actually breeze through there. But the fact is, this was the Job that the Lord was bragging about. This is the one when the sons of God came to present themselves before God, that the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, a just man, upright in all of his ways? And Satan said to the Lord, well, of course he acts that way. Look how you treat him. Look how kind you are to him. And the Lord said, well, stretch out your hand against all he has, but spare his body. And then we know of all the catastrophes that struck Job's house. And then Satan comes back and the Lord says, well, there's Job. He maintained his integrity through all that you did. And then Satan says, well, of course he did, flesh for flesh. Tell you what, if you afflict his body, he's going to curse you 
to his face, and then Job was covered with boils, and the rest of the story most of us are familiar with. Yet in all this, Job 1.8 says, he did not charge God with wrong. Now, listen to what the Lord said to Job as he exchanged a debate with his three friends. And I use that term loosely based on some of the things they said to him. And his wife, listen, if your wife ever tells you, why don't you curse God and die, don't listen to your wife. (laughs) Or if your husband says that, amen? Now, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fashioned? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? He later says in the same chapter in 18 to 24, have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it into its territory, that you may know the paths to its home? Do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, meaning the great tribulation, the day of battle and war? By what way is light diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth. That's 14 out of 71 verses that are exactly like it. Where the Lord is saying, even in the midst of all that he allowed in Job's life, were you there when I spoke all this into existence in six night day cycles? Do you know how the earth hangs out in space on nothing? Do you know the measurements of the placements of the stars and the moon and all the other things that are so wonderfully designed within our universe and solar system. And listen, that just reminds us that when God says no, he's still God. And we still need to act like he is. Amen? Even if we don't like his answers, because sometimes we don't. Sometimes God says no when we want him to say yes. Now, back to where we started with our subpoint. When God says no, that's the worst time to go looking for a human who'll say yes. We just take God's no and we do what David did. We praise him for all the wonderful things he has done for us. When God says no, remember all his yeses. When God says no, it's the right answer. Because when God says no, he's still God. And thus we should praise him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because, listen, someday he's going to say yes to the prayer. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And this will all be over and we'll be out of here in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. And Father, we are grateful tonight for this text and the reminders within it that there are times where there are things that we are sincere about, honest and earnest desires in our heart that you say no to, petitions that we plead with you about, things that we cry out from the depths of our soul and spirit. And at times your answer is no. So Lord, help us to remember these things tonight. Even as you prepared David for what you were going to say. By reminding him of all you had done in his life. And we thank you for David's response to your no answer as well. 
that he sat before you, proclaimed your greatness, acknowledged your response that you were going to build his house and asked that it be done for the glory of your name. So many things for us to learn, Lord, and I pray that we hide them in our heart and ponder them when we go through those times that none of us enjoy, and you know that we are but dust, and Lord, you know our struggles and our frame. But Lord, we thank you that through all we experience, you are God, you are in control, you are sovereign, you are always right, even when you say no. So help us in those times where that answer is not the one we were seeking, to continue to praise you and not pout, but to give you that which you are worthy of, which is always the highest praise. We thank you for our time together tonight. And we pray that you bless us now as we go. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said together, Amen.